You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 141. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Today is going to be what I think is a pretty quick solo show. I always say pretty quick in the beginning, but you never know if I can go on for an hour. But I'm pretty sure... I'm not going on for an hour today, maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, And we are going to talk about some of the news stories, yes, related to the election. So my apologies. I know some of you are sick and tired of the election. But look, we've got two weeks left uh, until the election. And then you don't have to hear, uh, well, we might have to talk about the fallout. But you won't have to hear this stuff about for a while, about the polling and about social media. Well, you'll hear about social media (laughs) Uh, content moderation and censorship, of course, because that's something we talk about in the local maximum, but not not so um, not not in such a politically charged you know in environment. So, uh, all right, why don't I just get to it? Uh, today is going to be uh, the first story. Today is going to be social media censorship on the New York Post on Hunter Biden, Biden's emails. You all know about this. Some ground rules, a little bit for me talking about it. I know a lot of you are following these stories and other news and political podcasts, so I try not to you know, go on the big headline of the day. I'm I'm kind of breaking that a little bit. Uh, So I'm just going to kind of summarize it uh, because I know you guys are following the news. It's like big news everywhere. And then uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about where our social media platforms might be headed, like what this this really means. Um, And and also, I'm not going to get into the story itself in terms of like, you know, what um, w- what did Hunter Biden do and, and all that? I'll, I'll let that develop, or, or is this even real? I'll let that develop over the next few days because I just, I don't know, I'm not a journalist. I, uh, but I do observe, I do observe companies like Twitter and Facebook and I do have some, uh, you know, let's say personal experience in kind of moderating these large user-generated content uh, uh, you, you know systems. So I just want to um, I just want to talk about that aspect. So we're going to start with a couple of New York Times articles from this weekend. This is the Times, not the Post. And even though I know that the Times is, is biased, as we'll see, um, I don't want to focus on the Post email itself. So unfortunately, it's getting harder and harder to see the New York Times as attempting to be objective. You know, I can understand you know making the attempt to be objective and then kind of falling short, but it doesn't even look like they're attempting anymore. And this is harming. This is harming the Democrats. This is harming their side. I think that the expected election win for Biden might be in jeopardy, not from the emails, but from the response here, due to I don't know the Streisand effect, the effect that if you try to hide something, then more people share it, and then it looks even worse when it comes out. Uh, but let's talk about this um, New York Times article. This is from October sixteenth, um, and they say that this is after Twitter has blocked a New York Post article linking to Hunter Biden's emails that was apparently found on some laptop and that he dropped off at some store and then Rudy Giuliani picked it up. I'm not even going to go into the whole thing, but the, uh, the headline is that in a reversal, Twitter is no longer blocking the New York Post article because they got a lot of uh, pushback on that. They also said last Wednesday, you know, uh, Twitter blocked the links to the news article so you couldn't tweet it. It's not like they blocked individual people who were tweeting it. Um, you couldn't tweet the link to the newspaper article. And the New York Post is like, you know, a pretty major newspaper. Um, you couldn't DM it to someone. You couldn't message it to someone. So that's really interesting. I think that kind of takes things to a whole new level. The, uh, you know, what, what, what I find so crazy is, is what 
insane things that people say on Twitter that don't get any response. And so, look, if you think the the link in, into the post maybe you know is, there's lax journalism standards or something, I don't see that as being <laughs> as any kind of bar that they are going to set that filters that. They would have to filter out a lot of other stuff. But anyway. The time, I mean, that's like, you know, that's checking other journalists for journalists. They're basically setting the journalistic standards there. So the Times is careful to say, the New York Times is very careful to say, you know, quote, many questions remain about how the New York Post obtained the emails. Um, but again, I can't see how anyone can see that as an even-handed response. You know, there's been, uh, remember the dossier on, on Trump and all that. And, um, if you listen to, well, look, there, there's all sorts of, things that come out and sometimes some organizations are happy to put it out early and some want to wait, but why start now? Um, they also, the New York times is very, uh, uh, they make sure that they have certain phrases in here. Like, uh, you know, Twitter is doing this quote under pressure from the Republicans. It's always, you know, under the pressure. So anyway, the Times says that this is kind of Trump fault and Republicans are like these rabid dogs ready to pounce on Twitter's every move. I quote, other misinformation experts said Twitter and Facebook have had little choice but to make changes on the fly because of the off-norm-breaking behavior of Mr. Trump, who uses social media as a megaphone. Okay, I could see standards being applied personally, but how could anyone think that it's being applied evenly? Um, I'm going to continue to read. From the start, the New York Post article was problematic. It featured purported emails from Hunter Biden, a son of Joe Biden, and discussed business in Ukraine. But the provenance of the emails was unclear. That's like kind of where they came from. And the timing of their discovery so close to the election appeared suspicious. Uh, and then there's kind of a contradictory claim by Facebook spokesman Andy Stone. He said, quote, we remain committed to free expression. We remain committed to free expression while also recognizing the current environment requires clearer guardrails to minimize harm. Hmm. That is, those are two opposing ideas. Very hard, it's very hard to make that claim unless you're going to say how you're going to, uh, how you're going to link those two ideas, how you're going to adjudicate between them. Again, pretty kind of simple statement for me to make, but uh, hey, it's just, <laughs> we've got to make it over and over because that's, uh, that's how it goes these days. Um, it seems like this stuff, this censorship stuff, it only gets more brazen with every passing month. So I do want to talk a little bit about what does this mean for the future. I think it actually may cool down a little bit after the election. I think a lot of it is election related, but I think that's only temporary, because we've been talking about this for ages. You know, a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was worried about hate speech. I think I talked about that in episode nine, and he said he basically had a five-year plan to use AI to filter out hate speech. But now we're not talking about hate speech anymore. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, is hate speech a problem on Twitter and Facebook still? I would argue that it is. They haven't done a very good job filtering it out. But it's, um, in terms of now they're concerned about disinformation more than hate speech. So the the narrative has shifted quite a bit over the last four years, after the last over the last two years, really, since I started the podcast, which I found very interesting. Um, and yeah, there are other people saying, you know, really over the top inflammatory things about the emails. I mean, one Republican here I think said 
something like, you know, my sources just told me they saw Hunter Biden raping and torturing little Chinese children. This is just, this is a, um, this is a, a Republican with 100 followers. Unbelievable. Like, look, I mean, if, if you're just going to, uh, if you're just going to censor someone for putting out false information, why not censor that person? Instead, uh, we're talking about just the New York Post saying, oh, yeah, we, we found these emails, which are probably correct. Um, anyway, it, it, this whole thing reminds me of a quote from John Gilmore. I'm going to go back in time here. John Gilmore is an Internet activist from past generation. Um, I mean, he's still around, but uh, he said this in 1993. So that really was a past generation of the Internet. He said, the net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. Uh, that is a really interesting statement to me, and I kind of almost start to talk, think about uh, my episode on topology with Aaron. Let me see, what episode was that? Um, it's funny that I started with a political topic, and now I'm getting back into topology, which we said might not have a point. But anyway, we're talking about pointless topology in episode 133. And I think the idea is that certain topology, certain network topologies are more amenable to censorship than others. So for example, a line topology, which is kind of like a game of telephone between me and, and, and someone else in the end, and I have to go through each person, then the message has to go through each person, that's very easy to censor because each person can censor the message on its way in. Uh, another network topology is kind of like a spoken hub. So for example, uh, you might, I, I might put my message out and I give it to someone important who gives it to a centralized service, who gives it to someone important on the other end, to give, who gives it to my uh, recipient. And you know, maybe the centralized service, since everything goes through them, they can just, uh, they can just censor messages and information and the like. Um, but when you have something like a lattice, you know, say a two-dimensional lattice, kind of like a, um, uh, let's say a grid, with each point being a node, um, if a few nodes are not willing to share information, you can kind of route around that. So it's very interesting. Um, and, and then, of course, if you want to talk about the continuous topology of it's just, a, uh, it's just a surface, if I want to get a message from one point in the surface to the other, if there are like blotches on the surface, I could easily go around that. So I, I think that's what he means. You know, the net interprets censorship as, da as damage and routes around it. Unfortunately, now, the topology has changed. We're not, we're not talking about the, um, the more... I guess, kind of lattice topology of the internet. But we're talking about the centralized kind of spoken hub topology of these centralized services like Facebook and Twitter. But the interesting thing to think about is they are built on top of the internet. So uh, is the internet going to respond by, say, um, maybe having new services that, uh, that, that route the information around? We've seen that starting to happen. And does that does that matter? I think that remains to be seen. I think, I think the question to ask is, what does this all look like in 2024? Uh, first, let's go back in 2016, because you know, 2016 was the first election where Twitter was that big. I was on Twitter in 2012 but, um, and Facebook, but really people were very used to it in 2016. It was a very different medium. And so in 2016, these companies were criticized for not just allowing too much open debate. You know, the, the ideology of the people who started Twitter was free speech to begin with. Uh, don't forget that. Um, but they were criticized for not just allowing too much open debate, but for using their algorithms to get people hooked and addicted and to send them to more extreme content. And I tend to think that's probably 
correct that they did that. I don't know if it's necessarily all right-wing content that was happening, and I don't think all of the content that people are saying, oh, we've got to get rid of, you know, some people say, and therefore we must get rid of all right-leaning content, you know, and they kind of put everyone in this one box of the extreme content. I think that's wrong. But is it getting people, was it getting people hooked and sending them to more extreme content or more addicting content? Uh, yes, yes, I think that was, especially YouTube, especially YouTube. But the algorithms and all of that are not designed to work in your interest as the consumer. They're designed mainly to work in the interest of the, of the business, which is to keep you on there for longer and longer. And it's kind of sad if you think about it, like it's sort of, um, it's, they're in the business of like hijacking our minds and getting us to do things that, um, you know, that are kind of useless to us, but um, helpful to them, uh, which, which is not, I mean, that's kind of a parasite. I don't like that idea. Um, okay, so that was the, um, and then so the criticism in 2016 was also that they, you know, they, they didn't do enough. The criticism from the left, I guess you could say, was that they didn't do enough to stop uh, Trump content um, as if like that, that's the only problem. But okay, they, they took that to heart and now they kind of have to overcorrect. And where do we land here four years later in 2020? Or, or where do we land in 2020 is that we kind of have just blatant, you know, uh, uh, blockages and, um, and censorship. And they never wrote down a very clear set of guidelines, at least a clear set of guidelines that they could amend that can say what is, you know, what could be taken down and what can't. I mean, even if they want to say, okay, now we're going to write down a set of journalistic standards that we're going to hold everyone to. Um, and the New York Post did not meet our journalistic standards in that one article. Well, they never even wrote down those journalistic standards. So how do we know that um, the censors over at Twitter are actually applying this evenly and fairly. It doesn't seem like they have any, and Facebook as well, all of them. It doesn't seem like they have any uh, set um, set rules to do this. It's all kind of like ad hoc, and it almost seems like it's, um, it's driven by pressure from certain interest groups, whoever they're talking to, and it's not necessarily, oh, the Democrats. It's, I, I think it's more like, I don't know, certain, um, certain journalistic factions, certain... Uh, uh, certain groups that uh, for some reason have the ear of social media who have gotten in there. I don't know exactly how, but that's how it seems like it. So if you want these guys to get more and more power because you like what they're censoring, I mean, what, <laughs> I don't think that the people who are in control are necessarily the people you like. And, um, you know, what happens when someone you don't like has that power? So where does this land us in four years? Where does this land us in the year 2024? I was thinking about that. And, um, you know, my hope is that these organizations, Twitter and Facebook, have much less power. Um, you know, we, we can come back in a few years and check that out. One possibility, um, it's always a possibility that we kind of stay on the road that we're on. And basically, these organizations kind of freeze up and keep doing what they're doing. And we sort of need to wait for the next paradigm shift. There would be a lot of, let's say, precedent for that outcome. Um, you know, it's sort of like, Hey, we've got newspapers. There are a few major ones. We've got cable channels. There are a few major ones. It's very difficult to start a new cable channel. People do sometimes. But, you know, look, the hegemony of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, and, and a few others are, is kind of set in stone. And the only thing that really disrupted that is 
the rise of the internet. So maybe we have to, and, and the rise of social media. So maybe the next paradigm, which probably will be internet-based as well, will have to um, will have to route around that, um, as that quote says. But of course, uh, it, it it might take a long time. Like these these large trends, these large platforms are kind of a decade or two, um, you know, when, when you look at emerging technologies. So th in this case, we, can, we will have to wait several elections to see any difference. I think that this outcome, this, this uh, calcification, this freezing up of what we have now is probably most likely to happen if we see a large amount of regulation on these companies that they're actually calling for. Uh, because then it will make it even more difficult for competitors to come in, and it will make it more difficult to change things. You'll kind of have the lawyers uh, in the front seat, which which they already are at a lot of these companies, but it would be very difficult to uh, come in with a new startup. Uh, so another possibility is that you somehow have an internal revolution in these companies, and that could happen if their current actions are kind of deemed unprofitable, if they take a look at what they're doing, and they're saying, look, you know, well, first of all, one thing that could happen is they could say, look, we're all colluding. All, all these big socials, we're colluding and we're kind of doing the same thing. So one of them might say, you know what, we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to go, and they all kind of do it a little differently. But you know, one, one could really veer off and try to differentiate themselves uh, too um, in order to you know, pursue profit. Maybe they could decide that, hey, this certain thing that we're trying to do here, this is all you know, driven ideologically a little bit, and it's really not in the interest of the business. So they might start doing that as well. That pressure could come from public markets because a lot of these are publicly trading co traded companies. Um, another possibility is they could just lose power much more quickly. Um, that's kind of wishful thinking. I mean, these things are have ingrained themselves. They're pretty new, but they've ingrained themselves pretty hard into our life. And it's very difficult to have consumers change behavior that quickly. But there are alternatives that are rising. I don't think that any of these, you know, okay, some like conservatives are, are going to like these conservative alternatives. I don't think that that is going to be, that's going to stick because that will never appeal to the um, the general public. It would probably be something that appeals more to young people who are not as political maybe and want to talk about something else. Um, and maybe people who are have interests that are um, that are far outside the mainstream uh, that 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 might that might lead to the rise of of different different social organizations. But who knows? Uh, all this remains to be seen. I think I'll come back to my list in. I don't have to come back in four years. I can come back in, in six months or a year, and we'll see what it says. So this all these ideas are kind of born out of another Times article that I want to go over real quickly, and I want to quote from. Uh, this is from the 15th, the day before, um, and um, basically the, the title of the article is, let me see what it says, it's Facebook and Twitter dodge a 2016 repeat and ignite a 2020 firestorm. So again, they are overcorrecting for the criticisms that they received in 2016. Could have easily said that was going to happen. Since 2016, when Russian hackers and WikiLeaks injected stolen emails from Hillary Clinton campaigns to closing weeks of the presidential race, politicians and pundits have called on tech companies to do more to fight the threat of foreign interference. Uh, so on Wednesday, less than a month from another election, we saw what doing more looks like. So it, you can look at the parallels, the kind of history rhyming here. Hillary Clinton emails, those go out. Hunter Biden emails, now they're 
now they're doing things very differently. They're staying in this kind of interesting that um, both situation involved emails being leaked. Um, although it looks like the Hunter Biden stuff is not kind of a, a foreign uh, foreign intervention. I don't even know if the Hillary one has proven foreign intervention. That's just uh, conjecture, I think. But uh, okay, the article goes on later. It's true that banning links to a story published by a 200-year-old American newspaper, albeit one now that is a Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid, so that's an interesting <laughs> times dig at the, uh, at the post, uh, is a more dramatic step than cutting off WikiLeaks or some, some lesser-known misinformation for purveyor. Still, it's clear what Facebook and Twitter were actually trying to prevent was not free expression, but a bad actor using their services as a conduit for a damaging cyber attack or misinformation. Uh, oof, a lot of these words that are kind of, um, like a cyber attack, I think of actually like attacking the website, like making it, um, making it unfunctional or making, making it dysfunctional or um, taking over somebody's account and stealing money, not putting out information, you know, <laughs> but uh, the Times calls it a damaging cyber attack. Uh, they also say that if companies did nothing, the, the, the Times says that if the social media companies did nothing, they risk getting played again, quote, getting played again by a foreign actor seeking to disrupt an American election. They didn't know that uh, it apparently was not a foreign actor. So the ending to this article is kind of amazing. <laughs> so I'm just going to read the whole thing and, uh, and maybe react to it real fast. The Times goes on, and then I'm done with uh, quotes. The Times goes on. The truth, of course, is that tech platforms have been controlling our information diets for years, whether we realized it or not. Their decisions were often buried in obscure community standards updates or hidden in tweaks to the black box algorithms that govern which posts users see. But make no mistake, these apps have never been neutral, hands-off conduit for news or information. Their leaders have always been editors masquerading as engineers. So this is very interesting. I feel like the <laughs> Times has given away the game here, uh, which you know I've seen. I have not seen that happen at Foursquare, but I, I totally could see how that happens because engineers like myself are given a lot of power over what happens in the content because we make all the tools that, um, that, uh, that control the content and then you know uh, people just say, all right, good enough, <laughs> basically. Uh, so anyway, time goes on. What's happening now is simply that as these companies move to rid their platforms of bad behavior, their influence is being made more visible. Rather than letting their algorithms run amok, which is an editorial choice in itself, they're making high-stakes decision about flammable political misinformation in full public view with human decision-makers who can be debated and held accountable for their choices. That's a positive step for transparency and accountability, even if it feels like censorship to those who are used to getting their way. Feel, it's interesting, feels like censorship is, is kind of an interesting term that the Times uses here. This is why I feel like the New York Times isn't actually, they're, they're using terms that are very emotionally and sort of suggestive, which they've been doing for many years, but it's, it's so obvious here. And finally, the Times says, after years of inaction, Face, I wouldn't say years of inaction, but anyway. After years of inaction, Facebook and Twitter are finally starting to clean up their messes, and in the process, they're enraging the powerful people who have thrived under the old system. So that's a really interesting narrative. So it's, no, the people that they are getting rid of are the powerful people, the people who are in charge of Facebook, the people who are in charge of Twitter, 
they're not the powerful people who are used to getting their way. But it seems like it's it's the it seems like it is the reverse. It seems like the people who are in charge of Facebook and Twitter are the powerful people who feel or who uh, are used to getting their way, and they're continuing to get their way. So basically, I don't know. That's all you need to know. Are we, have we been boiled alive here? Have we been kind of um, you know set up by these companies to just take hey, control uh, control what we see and what we don't see? And even when we, I, I mean, I, I'm I've never been happy with my information diet on these on these socials. And I'm thinking very hard about how I can exit them. I, I don't know exactly if it's possible. I advertise the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Many people find it in there. But I'm I'm seriously considered finding a way to exit them. I know my co-host uh, Aaron, he's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. So I don't know. Maybe this is a a resolution for 2021 to figure out if I can do that. Let me know what you guys think. Um, so, all right. Uh, uh, one more article that I want to give, and this is kind of a uh, another election article, also kind of right-leaning, so sorry. Uh, apologies for those of you who get annoyed by this stuff. But this is about the polling, uh, the, the polling episode that we did last week in episode 140 with Alex Andorra, and I got a lot of very positive feedback from that article because polling is a very interesting thing. And so I read this article from the National Review about the uh, Trafalgar polls. And so Trafalgar is a very controversial pollster because it's the only one that has Trump ahead. So they're kind of, so everyone's saying, you know, Biden's ahead by a lot. Trafalgar thinks Trump's ahead. So it's interesting to think, all right, well, well what does Trafalgar think? What, what, are they, what are they going for here? So I, w- I want to see what they have to say. Uh, this is an interview uh, from, well, basically an, an interview that uh, has turned into an article from Robert Kahali, who uh, founded Trafalgar. Uh, one thing that he said that I find interesting is that it's a very difficult to, to gauge the self-selection of the people you poll. So it, uh, it ends up being people who want to sit around answering political questions in the evening when they have other things to do. But I want to poll people who have kids, who are who have uh, who have jobs, very hard to do. Or podcasting me. If a poller, if a pollster, uh, pollster called me now, um, I wouldn't answer it because I'm in the middle of doing a podcast. You know, so you're, they're not getting the podcaster vote very good. Anyway, so he says that the people who want to answer political questions are either very left, very right, or very bored. I like that. Uh, so at Trafalgar, they stick to under ten questions, but I still think that's going to be an issue. And he says there's a possible Bradley effect. Bradley was the last name of someone who ran for governor of California, I think it was in 1982, who underperformed his polls. And they say it was because you know, maybe he, um, he was, uh, it was kind of like socially acceptable to vote for him. And so a lot of people kind of lied to the pollster. And they're saying, well, that's, that's probably what's happening now. Uh, Trafalgar also says... Um, that they have a much larger refusal rate among Republicans and conservatives. All pollsters notice this, uh, is that Republicans and conservatives aren't answering the polls. So what they normally do is, and what I would do if I were doing kind of an observational study like I did when I was doing advertising studies at at Foursquare, is that they would um, include a corrective factor for that. So, you know, if, uh, if half of the... Republicans refuse to answer. I'll just take the ones that did answer and multiply that result by two. 
that's maybe an oversimplification, but you can kind of see how it works. Um, so Kahali uh, from Trafalgar thinks that the that that what's happening is, and, and by the way, it's not like most pollsters don't know that. Like pollsters know that they correct for that. Everyone corrects for that. So so that's good. They're not they're not stupid. But uh, Kahali thinks that the anti-Trump Republicans are way more likely to answer than the pro-Trump Republicans. So in other words, the um, the, the polling data within the small number of Republicans who answers, he thinks is very skewed, and that's skewing other polls. I'm not saying that that's exactly that's what's happening. I'm just saying that's, that's, that's what he thinks, and so that's kind of another way to think about it. So another issue that came up is that they need to find people with a, who have a high propensity to vote but have a low propensity to being polled. And again, this I really noticed this from the work that I did in terms of measuring ads for Foursquare Attribution when it was like, we have to look at people's propensity to see an ad um, and their propensity to visit the, 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 the store that the, the ad was trying to get them to visit. And in this case, you know, so this is, this is a very legit thing. Like, you know, if, if a group of people has a very low propensity to being polled and um, you neglect to poll them, then your results can be way off in that subset, which could affect the election. So just the conclusion of this, this is just very fascinating stuff. As we learned last time, polling is not an open and shut calculation, as many assume that it is, and we'll just have to wait until election day to find out. So election day is now just two weeks away, and um, that means I have two episodes before the election. Are both of them going to be about the election? Probably not. Um, but so you might only have to have one pre, one more pre-election uh, episode. I'll probably invite Aaron in. So that's great. Another thing before we go, if you go to the website and you, uh, which is localmaxradio.com, some of you have noticed this. I think I said this before. I have a um, kind of a, a cheat sheet on Bayesian inference that you can get if you sign up for the email list. Uh, and it sort of gives you kind of a, a uh, quick way to calculate Bayes' rule and to solve problems. But what I'm trying to build on top of this is something a lot more, even more used. So check that out if you're into Bayesian inference. Um, I'm also doing a Bayesian conference a, uh, uh, in the, that happens at the end of the month, uh, PyMCCon. Let me, let me make sure that uh, I get it. First, okay, yeah, you can actually register for this conference and you can hear what I have to say. This is a conference that's on October 31st. It's um, on, uh, well, it's PyMC, which is a Bayesian framework, but it's also uh, for Bayesians in general. And I will post that on the website for, uh, this, for, for this episode, which is gonna be localmaxradio.com slash 141. Uh, so this is PyMCon 2020, P-Y-M-C-O-N. Um, and yeah, you could register for that. Um, my particular talk, I think afterwards I might make it into a podcast episode if I can. I talked about you know what is probability and what I learned through the course of uh, asking that question on the podcast and interviewing a lot of people. So, okay, so you can go online and get your cheat sheet on Bayesian inference. Uh, go localmaxradio.com, sign up for the newsletter. Great. I don't actually send out the newsletter yet, but I will. It's just my email list. And I, I will send good stuff. I don't want to just spam you with stuff, so that's not going to happen. Um, one thing that I do want to build that's kind of a uh, an extension to that is um, 
uh, a kind of uh, a, a much bigger worksheet or you know a, a pamphlet. I'm thinking like 10, 11 pages on using Bayesian inference to solve problems because Bayesian inference really is just the mathematical form, one mathematical formulation of the scientific method. It's kind of the scientific method with a particular point of view on, on how to do it. And I think that as I look through the steps that I take in solving problems, and I often ignore my own advice to my own peril. When I ignore my own advice, uh, I usually go back and say, oh, if I only had taken my own advice, I would have been able to solve this problem. And it's not just like problems at work. It's not just numerical problems and data problems, but I think this stuff can be used for personal problems as well. And so I'm kind of uh, you know, coming up with like eight steps I have here. Who knows, I might change that number uh, in order to, uh, to, like, to problem solving or to gaining new knowledge, which is based on the scientific method and based on Bayesian inference. I think that I can write kind of a good take on that and a good kind of pamphlet on that. So what I'm thinking is maybe I will end up doing kind of a step a day on the podcast and talk about each individual step. Maybe I won't do it every day. Maybe I'll just do it with Aaron when he comes on. And at the end of this, we'll have a really nice, um, we'll have a really nice kind of collated pamphlet for you to use, uh, for, for any of us to use when we are solving difficult problems. And sometimes when you have that framework, it makes it easier to solve your problems in life. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, all right, so next week I have, there's been a whole lot of interest now on people who are interested in being interviewed on the local maximum. So if you're interested in being interviewed or if you're interested in just doing like a five minute call in, let me know. Uh, but um, you know, I'm trying to wade through who I should interview and who I shouldn't. Uh, so it, it takes a little while, uh, but uh, I might get a few fascinating people on here. So great. Uh, that's it. Like I said, quick solo show today. I'm glad I kept it at 30 minutes. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.